We're in John 19 this morning, and we're beginning in verse 1. Let me read this to us. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Behold the man. And when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die, because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard that statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered you, therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. And this is the word of the Lord. So back in like 2004, I had been at that point in time a pastor for about two years. I was leading a small rural church. Uh, You know, I was like 20 or 21 years old. I didn't have a clue what I was doing at the time. Um, And this was the year that the Passion of the Christ movie came out. Do you remember the Passion? Like Mel Gibson's uh, Jesus movie came out. And I remember one of our church members had bought uh, an enti- bought out like an entire showing of that movie at a theater, and so like everybody in our little church went to see this movie together. And you know, I, I feel like I have to say that like historically, personally for me, I am not a big fan of Christian movies. Uh, most Christian movies tend to be very low budget. Poorly acted, poorly made, uh, sometimes overly cheesy. Um, so, so there's that. But then also, I, I, I personally do not love like, like reenactments of the Jesus story, whether on screen or on stage. I, this, I don't think there's anything wrong or sinful with it or anything like that. I just don't love it. I feel like it diminishes it in a certain way because it, it clearly is not the same thing. It clearly does not live up to um, the level of severity uh, that was actually at play in the, crucif- the actual crucifixion. Um, and so for me, just historically, I, I don't love that kind of stuff. And I know you're going to ask, yes, I have seen The Chosen. Um, I, I feel like The Chosen is really well made, is, is one of the better kind of examples of this kind of thing that's out there. Um, but, but anyway, I, like, I just feel like I have to give a little caveat there to that. 
Um, I also have flashbacks, I think, to these like annual Easter passion plays at my church growing up, you know, where the one guy in the church, uh, you know, that looked like Cliff that, that had a beard and a little kind of slightly long hair was always Jesus. And, um, I remember one year specifically where he, it was like the first time ever, uh, they had actually allowed in the sanctuary at the church, uh, Jesus to ride in on a legit donkey. Uh, into the sanctuary at the church. And I remember vividly that he got to like the front of the sanctuary, got off the donkey and the donkey bolted like out of the, like as fast, like you'd never seen a donkey run so fast. Uh, just like out, out, out of the sanctuary and literally out the front doors of the church. And, and like with a bunch of like men in the church chasing after it. And they found the donkey like a mile away at the Burger King in Minden. I kid you not, uh, like in the drive-thru at the Burger King. <laughs> so, um, so anyway, I've never loved that kind of stuff. Uh, that said, uh, if you have not seen the YouTube video of the church passion play where the set catches on fire, like right as Jesus emerges from the tomb, it is a classic, just search flaming tomb on Easter Sunday, and you will not be disappointed, I promise you. Anyway, uh, when The Passion of the Christ came out, there were a couple of big controversies around that movie. Uh, I don't know if you guys were old enough to, to be aware of these things or remember some of these things, but uh, one of the controversies was it was probably the most bloody and most violent uh, mainstream Jesus film that had ever been made. Uh, that was very intentional on the part of the filmmakers. It's kind of how the film was marketed as well, in a way. It was like the most realistic depiction, perhaps, that had ever been filmed. Um, it was also rated R. I don't know if you remember that. It was rated R, which was kind of a big deal, where Christians were kind of like, oh, you know, do we, do we watch rated R movies? You know? but, but I think it was part of the point, right? Like, this was clearly like a rated R moment in history, right? This was not um, in any way, uh, I think, what a lot of, like, pictures and depictions of the crucifixion have historically been. It was not the this kind of whitewashed, sanitized, bloodless thing. It was truly torturous and brutal. The other point of controversy, though, was in its portrayal of the Jews. And the film was famously characterized by some as being anti-Semitic because the bad guys in the movie were Jews. Um, the Anti-Defamation League, which fights against anti-Semitism, said this at the time, uh, we were saddened and pained to find that the passion of the Christ continues its unambiguous portrayal of Jews as being responsible for the death of Jesus. There is no question in this film about who is responsible at every single opportunity. Mr. Gibson's film reinforces the notion that the Jewish authorities and the Jewish mob are the ones ultimately responsible for the crucifixion. So at the time, there was a pretty big response from the Jewish community to go, hey, 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 like we didn't kill Jesus. Don't pin this on us. The Romans did it. The Romans did it. Now, what's interesting about that claim is that, obviously, in 2004, no one had been there. Like, no one had actually been in the at the crucifixion. No one had been there in the days leading up to it. And also, 
the primary historical record of the crucifixion and the events leading up to the crucifixion is the New Testament. There are extra biblical sources that affirm the validity of the crucifixion, but those are by and large Roman sources. They aren't necessarily Jewish sources, but regardless, like the greatest detail on this event and the things leading up to this event um, that could lead anyone to say, here's what was going on behind the scenes to make this like a historical event. Here's how this historically happened. Like any real detail. Detail about that comes from the New Testament alone. And I was remembering that controversy this week as I read Jesus's words to Pontius Pilate in verse 11 of our text, where he says, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Who delivered Jesus over to the Romans? It was the Jews. And here also you have the chief priests and the officers shouting, crucify him, crucify him. So it's like, do do both the Jews and the Romans bear responsibility in the death of Jesus? Are they both culpable in the death of Jesus? Yes. But Jesus says the greater sin is with the Jews, which is totally in keeping with where John's gospel began in chapter one. This whole thing began chapter one, verse 11, with John saying he came to his own and his own people did not receive him which is sort of an understatement. It's not that they just didn't like him or that they didn't receive him. They actively worked to kill him. Uh, by the way, as an aside, why is this event called Jesus's passion? You ever wondered that? Why is this called his passion? Um, I think some people think it's called his passion because it is like a display of love. Um, you know, for God so loved the world, that, that kind of thing. But, but it's actually called his passion for a very different reason. Um, up until the Protestant Reformation in the 1500s, pretty much all services in the Western church um, and all Bibles in the Western church were in Latin. Like everything was in Latin. Um, for those of you who are raised in the Roman Catholic Church, you probably know that pretty much all services, all masses in the Roman Catholic Church were in Latin until the 1960s. I mean, until very recently, the 1960s, where the Second Vatican Council, or what's known as Vatican II, uh, made it okay for services to be held in English for the first time. So for the great bulk of the history of Christianity, particularly in the West, services uh, and scripture has been in Latin. So passion, the word passion, is actually an English rendering of a Latin word that means suffering. It means suffering. And up until the 1600s or so, anytime this word was used, it was almost like exclusively referring to Jesus and Jesus's suffering specifically. And then the 1600s, around that time, this word starts to get used in English for some other things. At first, it gets used for like anger. Like you say, man, he's really passionate. Um, then ultimately, William Shakespeare brings in these like uh, romantic connotations where passion and being passionate it now means a very different thing to us in today's world, and we almost exclusively relate it to romantic love and that kind of stuff. So that's just a little bit of an aside uh, on, on why we call this the passion of Jesus. Suffering is at the forefront. Suffering is at the forefront. This suffering piece is extremely important. 
C.S. Lewis, uh, who was an atheist in his younger years, had originally rejected Christianity despite growing up in the church. He had rejected Christianity kind of as an academic uh, over the question of why does God allow pain and suffering in the world? Like, if he's so good and powerful, why doesn't he step in and, like, do something about it? And Lewis wound up writing an entire book about it called The Problem of Pain, one of his earlier books, actually. Um, and it's, it's about that very topic. And what Lewis ultimately concludes is that if the story of Christ is true, as it's presented in the scriptures, then the whole reason that Christianity exists is because of evil and suffering in the world. Why was it necessary for God to send his son into the world? Is it not because we were separated from him because of evil and sin? And if the story of Jesus is true, then what he has accomplished on the cross is ultimately the restoration of all things. Now, we don't see it fully yet, and the scripture tells us that that's the case as well. But ultimately, through faith, we believe that Christ will return and that he will inaugurate a new heaven and a new earth and all suffering and all evil and all pain will become a thing of the past. Scripture says he will wipe away every tear. And one of the true hallmarks of Christian faith, as compared to all other world religions, is its view of suffering. Hinduism tends to regard suffering as punishment for things done in a previous life. Buddhism says that suffering comes from being like too attached to the things of this world, like the material things of this world, including other people. If you're suffering, you're just too, you're too attached to those things. Islam tends to focus more on good deeds in this life so that you can get out of suffering in the life to come and get into paradise in the next life. Christianity, however, is literally the only framework where God himself comes to dwell among his creation so that he can suffer with them. And through suffering with them, he ultimately brings suffering to an end. He is the God who weeps with his creation and bears with his creation, even though we are the ones who create and perpetuate pain and suffering. So in the Christian framework, if you escape suffering eternally, it will not be because you have been a good person. It will be because Christ is truly good and was sacrificially obedient. This is what was prophesied by, prophesied, by the way, about the Messiah. Back in the Old Testament, uh, in the pages of Isaiah. Isaiah has a series of chapters that relate to this figure called sometimes the suffering servant. Uh, Isaiah 53 is a big one. If you want to turn there real quick. Isaiah 53, uh, verses 4, 5, and 6. Here's what the prophet Isaiah, hundreds of years before the time of Christ, here's what he says about this coming suffering servant. Um, what he says is, surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. 
and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus is suffering, Isaiah says, Jesus' suffering cannot be diminished because in his suffering, he is taking on our suffering. He is bearing it. And part of what the scripture wants to portray to us is Jesus' full humiliation. Like in this moment of his passion, in this moment of the cross, scripture wants us to be aware of just the extent of like, how humiliating this moment was. And we're going to see this in even greater detail as we progress. But today, our text reveals to us like the mockery of the Roman soldiers. If you recall last week, we were reminded of how like only a week prior to this, Jesus rode into Jerusalem with great fanfare. It's what's known as the triumphal entry. Like he comes in and immediately prior to this, he had raised somebody from the dead, his, his friend Lazarus who had died and was dead for several days, Jesus raises him from the dead. This stirs up all kinds of interest in what he's up to, and um, it, it creates worship as well. Like, people are suddenly following him. And I mean, and I don't just mean proverbially. I mean, like, literally following him around. And as he comes into the city of Jerusalem, people are lining the streets, shouting praise to him, and, and like, laying their garments on the road. And and, and it is a very strange scene because in some ways it is like a royal entry into Jerusalem. And yet there are all of these elements that are real sketchy because if, if like a real like human king was riding into Jerusalem, he would not be riding on a donkey, right? He, he wouldn't have people like just laying down their clothing like they're, they're like, like they're literally taking off their cloaks and laying them down. It would have been a much more like luxurious and kind of fabulous and, uh, you know, sort of a lot of wealth and pomp on display. But, but with Jesus, these are essentially common people who are hailing his entry into the city and proclaiming that he is king of the Jews. That, that's what happened just like a few days prior to this. And now he is wearing a crown of thorns he is arrayed in a purple robe, but, but he's been stripped of his garments. He's been beaten up. He's been mocked by these Roman soldiers who have dubbed him also king of the Jews. And then he's been brought back to Pilate. Like his humiliation is only just beginning What's interesting is as the people had called him king of the Jews, as these Roman soldiers seize on that, which it must have been just sort of in the air. Pilate had inquired, but wait, are you like an actual king? Pilate, Pilate doesn't really know what's going on here. Like, are you like an actual king? Because the Jewish system had, had been allowed to remain under the leadership of the Romans. Like, there, there were still Jewish kings. Like, you've heard of King Herod, for example. King Herod is sort of this Jewish kind of puppet king that the Romans have allowed to remain in place, even though they very much controlled his actions. So, so Pilate's wondering, is this guy literally like an heir to the throne? And... and, and 
other people want to get him out of the way? Like, he doesn't really know what's going on here. So are, are you an actual king? And Jesus had replied, no, my kingdom is not of this world. How do you know my kingdom is not of this world? It's because my followers are not fighting for my release. They're not taking up arms. They're not creating a rebellion. They're not doing any of that stuff. They're not getting violent. They are um, like, I, I, I am here and, and there's not some army coming for me. But we see the Roman soldiers also picking up on this in verses 2 and 3 of our text. They twisted together that crown of thorns. They put it on his head. They arrayed him in a purple robe. And they came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they struck him with their hands. Again, Pilate seems really in the dark here. He, He doesn't really understand what the issue is. He doesn't know much about Jewish law, Jewish culture. When the Jews brought Jesus to him last week, he asks, well, what has he done? And the Jews, like, rather than saying, well, here's, here are the charges against him, the Jews basically say, hey, we, we wouldn't have brought him to you if he hadn't done something really bad. So they don't even initially tell Pilate, like, why? Like, why? What's happened? Why in the world should I kill this guy? Eh, believe us, he, he's not a good guy. Like, you could release that guy Barabbas to us, who's a robber. Feel free to release him, because we're telling you that what this guy's done is way worse than anything Barabbas has done. And at their insistence, I think Pilate thinks, if I just have this guy punished by the soldiers, if they just kind of rough him up and beat him up a little bit, and then I kind of bring him back out and they can see that he's worse for the wear, then that's going to satisfy their anger and they're going to say, okay, that's probably good enough and, and that's going to be the end of this. And they're going to go away. So that's what he does. He has Jesus flogged. He's beaten. He's mocked. He's spit upon. He's given the crown of thorns. He's given the purple robe. He's humiliated. He's presented back to the Jews as this bloody mess. And this in no way appeases them. Crucify him. Crucify him. I mean, they're literally like chanting it here in John. Crucify him. And and when Pilate tries to say, well, fine, you guys take him and do whatever you want, That's the point where they say, well, actually, we have a law. This is verse 7. We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he made himself the Son of God. What's so interesting here is they want him killed, but they do not want to do it. Like, it's Passover, like, like right at the beginning of all of this, Passover is getting started. If you remember last week or the week before, the Jews didn't even want to, like, go into Pilate's um, apartment because they didn't want to be defiled by entering his facility. And if they were defiled under Jewish law, they couldn't eat the Passover. So we're bringing this guy to you so that he can be killed. But we also want to somehow remain righteous and clean and religious in all of this, so we really need you to do it. And so even when Pilate here says, listen, you've got my okay. You take him, you do whatever you want with him. They go, well, no, no, no. No, we really want you to do this. And, and here's the deal. He's made himself the son of God. Our law says you have to be killed for that. Like this is this level of blasphemy that uh, is just above everything else. Our law says he must be killed. So, by the way, as I mentioned last week, I don't think this is really why they want Jesus dead. 
I don't, I, don't, I don't think it's because of his blasphemy. Yes, his language, his actions have been offensive to many of the Jewish leaders. But I think the real reason seems to be that they are worried that Jesus is in actuality ramping up a revolutionary force who will try to retake power from the Romans and install him as king. I, I, I think that is potentially what a lot of those folks at the triumphal entry thought was happening. Um, And that's evidenced by the fact that only a week later, when it's clear that that is not what's going down, those people abandon him, like at the drop of a hat. And many of them are potentially ones saying, crucify him. So I don't don't think this is simply about blasphemy. Um, I think they're worried that ultimately the Romans are going to sweep in and wipe them all out. And, and that would not be the first time that something like that had happened. There had been Jewish revolts, Jewish rebellions uh, in the past that the Romans had had to put down. And the reality is that only a few decades later, Jerusalem itself would be completely destroyed by the Romans, including the temple in Jerusalem, um, because of a Jewish revolt against Rome. Rome does sweep in and just wipe out the whole city, and it does put an end to the reign of the Pharisees and the Sadducees in leadership. So make no mistake here, um, this is not a pious religious thing. This is far more a political thing. Um, They want Jesus dead uh, far more for political reasons. It's also a political thing for Pilate as well. He has political reasons for like wanting to do what the Jews want him to do. Like now they don't control him and he doesn't have to do what they say, but he does have to deal with the repercussions of being on their bad side. So like as governor of the region, he's not necessarily there to rule with an iron fist. That isn't really what the Romans have done. Um, He's really there more to kind of like keep the peace because this was a great source of income for the Roman government. The Romans would come into regions like Israel and they would take over and they would set themselves up as sort of the overlords, but then they would allow everything else to just go on as it had. Uh, Commerce, religion, everyday life, and then they just taxed the mess out of it. And so they were making all kinds of money off the people. So as far as the Romans were concerned, there was no real benefit to a Jewish revolt, right? Like they already possessed everything. Like, like they already controlled the area. The real benefit was for the people to continue to do their work and to engage in trade and commerce and for them to just skim off the top what they thought was theirs. So for Pilate, a big part of his role is to keep that peace, to make sure that system continues to perpetuate and that the Romans continue to enrich themselves off revenue from the Jews. But when they say he has made himself the son of God, or it could be translated something like he says he is the son of God. John says that this frightens Pilate. And it frightens Pilate, I think, because as a Roman, uh, he probably would have believed in a pantheon of gods, 
Um, in that pantheistic uh, system, there is, uh, there is room that is made for mystery, right? And there is room made for the fact that maybe we don't know all the gods. Maybe we only know some of the gods. We see some of this later in Paul, when Paul goes to Athens. Paul notices that there's actually a, a statue or a monument in Athens to an unknown god. And, and, and Paul seizes on that, and he uses that in his rhetoric with the Athenians to go, let me tell you who this unknown God is that you don't know. It's actually Jesus Christ. Um, so, so in Pilate's like religious framework, there is room here for there to be something going on that I don't know about. And because he's an ancient person, he also probably has a more mystical worldview than people do today, right? He's living before the age of reason and the age of enlightenment and all that kind of stuff. So uh, the idea that somebody could be a God was like a, a real thing because Caesar was God for the Romans. Like Caesar was not just like God's representative at times. I mean, he literally was thought of as being God, depending on what part of the tradition of the Roman empire you're looking at. So I think this is why he's frightened by this. Verse nine. And so he goes back into his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Where are you from? I, I think that Pilate is doing here the thing that all people who encounter Jesus seriously have to do. He is working through the implications of Jesus's identity. If what they say about him is true, then what? Right. If if what he says about himself, what his followers have been saying about him is true, then it's earth shaking. But but if he's just a crazy person, then it's inconsequential. That's that old question. Again, C.S. Lewis frames it this way. He, he's only one of three things. Right. He he's either a maniac or he's a liar or he is the son of God. There, there are not any other options out there. So what is he? And this is the question we all have to ask unless we like stick our heads in the sand. If there's even though a remote possibility that what Jesus claims about himself is true, don't you like owe it to yourself to actually explore it seriously? To not just kind of brush it off and move past it? If, if there's even any possibility that there's validity to this, like, shouldn't you look into it? One of the things that the New Testament says is that believers should be prepared to give it a, de a defense or like an account for the hope that is within us. And the basic premise of that idea is that there should be much more to one's claim of faith than something like, well, I grew up in the church, or, well, my parents are Christians, or, well, you know, I'm a member over at such and such church. But, but rather, that the good news of Jesus Christ should have such an impact on us that it, like, exudes out to other people and leads them, actually, to ask about it. Not just because we're nice people or kind people. No, like we're actually talking about hope here. Hope that is like present and steadfast and obvious in the midst of a world of suffering. And in the midst of the wor a world of pain and grief. That we would be a people 
who actually have hope and not despair and not the like permeation of depression and anxiety that is just running throughout our culture, but that we are a people who actually believe in the reality of Jesus's identity and as a result believe my sins have been forgiven. They've literally been taken away because of Christ. If all of that is true, then God himself has stepped into the midst of our suffering, our grief, our sin, our shame, our depression, our anxiety, not as a passive observer, but as an active participant so that we would not be held responsible for the mess that we have made of this world but rather forgiven and made righteous before God. Literally like receiving the righteousness of Christ and and having God attribute it to us as if it were our own. How is that accomplished? It is accomplished through the God who suffers with us by bearing our sin and our shame. So if that is true, what do we do? Scripture says we turn from ourselves. We turn from our sin. And we turn to him. And and I think scripture means that like literally and proverbially. Like there is a sense in which on like a heart level or a mental level or however you want to think about it, like an internal level, that we turn from the things that we have sought in this world as like sources of fulfillment or sources of like success uh, or, or however you want to think about it. Like the things that we have gone after as like in the hopes that those things will bring us some level of fulfillment, that we would actually turn from seeking those things as being the chief end of our life and that we turn to Christ as being the chief end of our life. Paul even uses language to suggest that he becomes our life. Jesus says things like you must be born again, right? Like, which is getting at that idea that there is something about us that has to be like rebirthed, recreated, And it is accomplished through the cross. And so we turn to him. We take on as well what comes with turning to him, including, by the way, potentially more suffering. With the understanding that our suffering does not compare to his. Not just in him getting beaten up by some Roman soldiers, but through having God lay on him the reproach do the entire world. Let me close this morning uh, with the words of the writer of Hebrews. The writer of Hebrews uh, references the Old Testament law, and he talks about the fact that in the Old Testament, the way that one's sins were absolved was through the sacrifice of animals in the Hebrew sacrificial system. But it was something that had to be re-upped over and over again all the time. Um, And these animals would be sacrificed on the altar. The carcasses of these animals would be burned outside the city, outside the camp. Um, And and so seizing on that image of of these these animals that had been like, they, they, they had been this like gateway 
to forgiveness and atonement in the Old Testament, but also they're like being burned outside the gate of the camp. Here, here's, here's what the writer of Hebrews says, kind of seizing on that imagery. He says, so Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. So this sacrifice that is not a once a year sacrifice or an every so often sacrifice when we need it, but a like once and for all sacrifice that cleanses perfectly. His blood somehow cleanses perfectly has also suffered outside the gate. And then he says, therefore, let us go out to him. Let us go out to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. For here, he says, here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. In other words, acknowledging the name of Christ truly does not simply mean saying, yes, I think he's the Messiah. It also involves the fruit that comes out of a life that doesn't just say that, but that actually means it. That truly is resting in the hope of this God who steps out out of paradise, steps out of his place of prominence and power, and who suffers with us. Let us go to him and not just give him lip service, but let us truly throw in our life with his and follow him fully. May God bless the hearing and reading of his word. Let me pray for us. Father, Give us grace this morning, Lord, as we read your scripture and consider the implications of the brokenness of our world and yet the good news of Jesus. I pray, Father, that you would communicate these truths into our minds and our hearts through your Holy Spirit. And, Father, that you would help us um, in our humanness to grasp these things and to truly find hope in them. Thank you, Father. It's in your holy name we pray. Amen.